Welcome to BitSplitting with Daniel Chalkut. Today's guest is Brent Simmons, founder of Ranchero Software, creator of NetNewsWire and MarsEdit, and co-creator of Glassboard. Today's show is sponsored by NextPage, sheet music for your iPad, because paper music is a hassle. All right, folks, welcome back to Bit Splitting. My guest this time is Brent Simmons, the founder of Ranchero Software, uh, the original creator of both NetNewsWire and MarsEdit, one of the creators of Glassboard, and a a longtime member of the Mac and iOS developer communities. Welcome to Bit Splitting, Brent. Hey, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Longtime member, yeah. I've been around for quite some time. You've been around. You've been around uh, working on Macs, or, or, or actually, uh, you, you said to me you've been using Apple computers. What your whole life? Your whole computer? Well, since since nineteen eighty, which would be yeah, the first computer I had was an Apple II Plus, and uh, uh, that's where I first started programming. Because in those days, there wasn't much else you could do. Uh, you know, if you wanted to have a game, you had to write the game, basically. And I was lucky enough that both my parents were computer programmers, so I got got an in-home education from an early age that is that is really great i don't know uh i don't know if you happen to listen to the uh my interview yet with john syracusa but we were sort of um we were sort of bemoaning the fact that for example in my case my dad was a computer programmer and i just sort of neglected to ever ask him for the help you know so, uh-huh. yeah um but you you said your mom and your dad were programmers uh, did they work in similar fields to each other, or did you have some diversity of the, the programming input? Uh, I like to joke that um, mom was Fortran and dad was COBOL. Uh, yeah. my, dad, my dad worked at DuPont, and I don't think he was still programming by 1980, but uh, he had been, you know, he used to bring home punch cards for me to play with when I was a, when I was a very young kid. Uh, and my mom was still a programmer at that time and, and remained so uh, up until her retirement a few years ago. Um, and she was working for a solar energy company. It may be hard for people to remember, people who weren't even born yet, but in the 70s, people were really worried about running out of oil, and the government started pouring a whole lot of money into uh, alternative energy uh, companies, and solar energy was a big part of that. So she worked for a little uh, company called Solar Energy Systems in Newark, Delaware, which, I don't know, went out of business decades ago, surely. But that, that was the scene back then. Now I know that you um grew up on the East Coast but uh you were born in Chicago. I was. Yep, I was born uh, on the south side of Chicago even in 1968. Uh just a few days before the assassination of Martin Luther King. I I figure there's no actual connection between the two events. But, oh, I uh, certainly hope not. But how long? Yeah. How long did your? I assume you you moved out of Chicago because your folks moved. Um, but how long were you there before moving to the East Coast? Oh, uh, probably a year and a half, something like that. My dad was going to the University of Chicago, so that's that's why I was there. Then we moved to where did we move? Moved to Newark, Delaware, and I stayed in the Newark, Delaware, Elkton, Maryland area up until uh, graduating high school. But all my family is in the Philadelphia area. Um, Philadelphia, North Delaware, South Jersey, 
So you've sort of pulled a reverse uh, migration from what I did, moving from the West Coast, growing up on the West Coast to the East Coast, and uh, keeping family at a continent's reach away. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. And and frankly, your migration is just seems backwards to me, right? It hasn't hasn't all of American history been a, a push west? And, yes. and there you go, going east. It doesn't make any sense. The east is not the frontier. You know, the you, west is. You didn't realize I was quite as regressive as I am. <laughs> Holy cow, yeah. <laughs> so My uh, goodness. I mean, what's next? You move back to England and become a monarchist? I mean, I'm going to I'm going to move back to the cradle of civilization. The Tigris and Euphrates? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I hear that's a very, very fun area. <laughs> it's really, it's really nice place, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Um, so it's really interesting to hear that you, um, you got the benefit of your parents both being programmers and you started programming, I guess, sometime around 1980. So let's see, you would have been about 12 years old by then, I think. Yep, that's right. Yeah. And at, at, at that that leaves a lot of time before computers were even a part of your childhood. So can you go back a little bit in time? Uh, you know, when you think back to Brent Simmons going to uh, second, third grade in Delaware, mm. Maryland area, what were mm-hmm. some of the things that were on your mind? Like, you, you know, like uh, kids today, you ask my kid, you ask my son, uh, Henry, to talk to you for five seconds and he'll, he'll, he'll start chatting about iPads. You know, this is okay. like, this is all over his mind. Um, when I was a kid about, uh, you know, his age, I guess it would have been probably talking about something like the Incredible Hulk. I don't know what, what, mm-hmm. uh, what, uh, what was ticking for you? you? You know, it's hard to think back now sometimes for those of us who grew up um, at the dawn of personal computing mm-hmm. or even maybe a little before it. Uh, and what used to make us tick before you know these days most of us are mostly ticking ticking around technology that's a great question yeah so the 70s i i i feel so fortunate to have been born in 1968 and to to grow up in the 70s the 70s were a magical time and the reason well one of the reasons for that is that it was the last era where adults didn't give a shit about what happened to children just didn't care. So we didn't have bike helmets. We didn't have, uh, you know, none of us had chip implants or any crazy thing. And we were basically just told go outside and play and come back in time for dinner. And, and what happened, what we actually did was of absolute no interest to anybody older than 18. And that was wonderful because it, it gave us, uh, we were like the last kids to be, truly free and independent you know so we'd you know get on our bikes and go off in the woods or or wherever and not one of us had a cell phone on us um you know no uh no protective gear of any kind it was you know uh, it, it was just kids running around in, in as close to a state of nature as i can possibly imagine and it was wonderful and i loved that and i loved being you know, so independent. And when I was away from adults, I was truly away. They did not know where I was. I loved that. Absolutely. Kind of, for some um, reason, uh, the comparison that's coming into mind is a little bit later than when you were a, a kid of this age. But uh, I'm thinking, uh, you know, Elliot from E.T.? Yeah, sure. Like, like, he didn't, I don't think he wore a helmet, right? 
<laughs> this is something critical we have to do some research Probably on. Probably not, yeah. Elliot yeah. didn't wear a helmet. And yeah. he had that yeah. free range. He had enough free range that, you know, if, if there had been an extraterrestrial roaming the woods behind your house in Maryland, mm-hmm. I guess you would have had the freedom to find it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and luckily enough, luckily enough, I actually did live in the woods. So, uh, you know, a development in the woods, but still you know, right. trees all all around, uh, horse pasture nearby, and all this stuff. And yeah, it would it would have played out a lot like that story, uh, because you know that story was more or less nonfiction, except for the alien. Part. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I I I'm a little younger than you, but I still had um, partly because I grew up in such a. Well, when I was real young, I grew up in such a, a rural part of Northern California that um, I think it still had, it was, let's just say it was slower to adopt the uh, sort of paranoid micromanagement of kids. Mm-hmm. And when I think back to that, now that I am a parent, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old, and I am just terrified to imagine <laughs> either yeah. of them. I, I, you know, when I was uh, seven years old or so, I remember inner tubing down the Sacramento River with my seven-year-old friend as my only companion. Mm-hmm. Huck Finn. Yep. It's totally, it was, yeah, it was just like that. And, you know, there were parts of the river where we as seven-year-olds knew, hey, don't go over to that part of the river or you'll probably never come back. Uh, mm. but yeah, right. Yeah. I just, it's unfathomable to me now. Um, but, you know, there is sort of a resurgence. Uh, have you heard of the free-range kids movement? I've not heard of that. I, I like the idea, having been one, um, but it does sound scary, doesn't it? It does. It scares the crap out of me. But yeah. on the other hand, I see this like, uh, you know, I see, I can see from a logical like deduction point of view that, you know, at some point, like micromanaging your kids to a fault is like refusing to take an airplane ride or refusing to get in a car because you know there is a chance that something could go wrong yeah right sure you know our parents did warn us about snakes i mean they at least gave (laughs) us some guidance well they had read the bible after all (laughs) right sure well and frankly the woods behind our house had copperheads and water moccasins so we did have to look out well that was one nice thing for me growing up in California. The only snake really we had to worry about was a rattlesnake. So mm, okay. that was a simpler simpler geography, a simpler time. Uh but, and you could hear them coming, right? They rattled. That's right. How it's like it's, a, it's, yeah. the, it's, it's like a p- perfect enemy in, in nature. Yeah, why, totally. Why can't they all be so uh polite in their in their welcoming themselves? Yeah. Yeah. So, Brent, one of the other things I know about you is that you are a passionate music fan. Mm-hmm. And I saw you speak at the uh, first Singleton Conference in Montreal, and you incorporated music into your performance in the talk. Uh, I know from talking to you, uh, uh, you know we've had we've had some fun times, uh, even in Montreal, playing at the piano at the uh, at the uh, piano bar. And you have said to me before that basically most most of your days are spent with you singing to yourself and thinking musically Um, yeah i do i i spend a lot of time singing as i'm working yep and uh going back again to that you know to the early roots was there any what was the role of music when you were a kid What, what was going on when you were out running around the streets of you know your hometown 
at some point did you get turned on to music was there like a record store moment or personal instrument moment can you think back to anything that really stands out in your mind I guess I can't really remember before music. So I remember being very, very young and, you know, responding to, you know, just whatever music was in the car or whatever, you know, just whatever came on the radio and, you know, just going around the house, humming and singing songs, um, including songs that my parents hated, but that were, you know, just happened to be a top 40 hit at the time. Right. Um, and then from there, I think I got a saxophone. Then I traded that for an acoustic guitar and, um, I, I was surprised growing up that, you know, you know, all my friends loved music, right? You know, everyone wanted the latest Cars album or ELO or whatever it was. Um, and they loved music. And yet I was just about the only person to actually sit down and learn a musical instrument. And I didn't quite understand that then, and I don't quite understand it now. Uh, because it seemed like such a natural thing to want to do. You know, if you can play a few chords on a guitar or on a piano and sing along... That, that just it's such a wonderful thing even if you're not particularly good at it it's just so much fun and I've never gotten particularly good at it I just uh, you know I do it for fun uh, yeah. but it's great you know uh, without music life would be a mistake is, is some old quote right and that totally makes sense to me I could give up computers but, but not music well that's interesting that's, a, that's taking a pretty big stand uh, and I'm not sure I could take that stand with you, but I um, I do share with you. <laughs> I do share with you the compulsion to sing all the time, and it drives my son Henry kind of nuts sometimes. He's he, he asks for he'll say, "I just need a little quiet time now." And I'm like, oh, all right, I'll say all right, and then thirty seconds later, da 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 da, it comes back on. Yeah. Half the time I don't even know I'm doing it. I'm just yeah. you know I'm just working you know. But I, but isn't the image wonderful? You know, a programmer sitting in a room in front of his computer, you know, happily singing along as he's, you know, writing his software. Yeah, I absolutely. Think that's cool. absolutely. The, the, the jolly old soft, software man. Yeah. 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 Um, so you grew up in uh, Maryland, East Coast, Philly area. And then at some point you looked out across the continent and I guess Seattle caught your fancy. Can you think back to what was going on in your life uh, when you decided that you would make that adventure across the country? Uh, I'll get to that. But there was a, there was a point earlier in history that I think I want to come back to deal with first, which is um, growing up in the seventies, being born in 1968. That meant that when star Wars came out, I was the exact perfect age because I was like, what, nine or 10 years old. And that movie you know, and that came out before, you know, people had personal computers. So Star Wars was first. And that was just like a, an explosion, like a supernova to kids of that age. And I think to a lot of adults. Um, but, you know, seeing that movie and, and just the one, you know, not knowing everything that was going to happen. But just that one incredible movie uh, as a 10-year-old was, I, I can't think of anything as gigantic since then. Uh, I'm so lucky to have been that age and had that experience right then. So the fact that you highlight that and you want to make sure that everybody appreciates how much you appreciated that as part of your childhood happened when you were around 10 years old, that must have meant that you spent the rest of your childhood kind of sitting around thinking, where's the next Star Wars? 
Absolutely, yeah. Like, where's the where's the next thing that's gonna? Did it, did it set your expectations too high for how great you know popular culture was supposed to be and how much you could count on? You know, obviously, The Empire Strikes Back happened, Return of the Jedi mm-hmm. happened, uh, and for a lot of people who loved those movies, I think we're still waiting for the greatness of Star Wars to come back again. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, no, nothing has touched that. I mean, yeah, no, nothing's come even all that close. And I realized even when I was a kid that, um, you know, by the time I was 14 or whatever, I realized, well, I'll never be 10 years old again. And so no movie, no matter how awesome, uh, could do what Star Wars did for me in 1977 or whenever it came out. Right. I'm reminded um, of John Gruber, who uh, who sort of has bemoaned but conceded that like his son Jonas at least at one point was preferring the sequel movies and it was uh, and it was sort of the same kind of thing like well those are the movies that came out when he was Star Wars age right oh sure yeah and Mm -hmm. uh you know whatever characters drive us adults nuts maybe um (laughs) some of these kids are just (laughs) as excited about them as we were about Luke Skywalker so uh so the is there anything else you want to uh talk about from this anything else come to mind in this era of east coast brent going to high school um what's kind of interesting is i guess uh let's see 68 78 so when the uh like like we were saying when you got the um the apple II, you were 12 years old that's sort of a time when if you get your first computer when you're 12 it could end up consuming your life or you could have like you could be on the brink of having too much other stuff going on uh mm-hmm. with your like you know teenage years coming in did it become for you something that was sort of a refuge or did you find a way to kind of balance it with having a so-called normal teenage life uh my teenage years were um Full of tor- turmoil. Uh, it was it was not a really great time, and it, the computer was a kind of a refuge. I could get away from everybody. Um, my my parents got divorced when I was thirteen, um, and that wasn't that bad. But what happened after that was that my dad remarried. I uh, did not like the woman he married or her two children, mm. um, who were both younger than me. And uh, my stepbrother's name is Brent. Just to add to the confusion, oh boy. Uh, but it was awful. I mean, so you mix the, you know, the normal, you know, there's a certain amount of craziness in any teenage year, but um, mix that with a really bad situation at home. And uh, yeah, it, it was not, not at all fun. Uh, but, you know, I had music, I had computers, and I had friends. And um, somewhere along the line, I, I discovered that I also enjoyed beer quite a bit. And that helped. There you go. That got me through. <laughs> so music, friends, computers, and beer, and yeah. things have not changed much since. No, really. I, I'm still 16 years old, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> so when your parents... Only, only in a better home life, thank God. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, that's good to hear. Um, yeah. When your parents split up, uh, were you one of, those, one of those kids who ended up having to sort of spend half, you know, one week here, one week there? Did you... Did you stay mostly with your mom, mostly with your dad? How did that work out? Uh, I stayed with my dad. Uh, and, you know, on some weekends, I'd go and live with my mom. 
but mostly I was, you know, with my dad in the same home I'd been in for many years. Right. And then there was just yeah. that, uh, this, that, that, uh, sudden influx of new people that, that <laughs> were, were sort of taking, yeah. taking away all the space that you had lived in and called your own. Yeah. New, awful people, new, crazy awful people. people. My, my, my stepmother, um, was convinced that, uh, that I was going to murder her and her son. Oh boy. Yeah. Now, uh, the listeners may not know this, but, but you do. I'm, I'm a pretty nice guy and not the murdering type, <laughs> but, uh, absolutely. You know, she told that to me on a few occasions back then. And like, that's a pretty tough thing for, you know, to, to tell a 15 year old who really is not, you know, not even mean, just a little bit, you know, desperate to get out of what the place he's in, but is not actually, you know, uh, a mean person at all. No. And it's, and it's the kind of thing where it's like, uh, I don't know how much your dad knew about what was going on with that, but that's the kind of thing where you would want me speaking as the dad. Now, like if I heard somebody saying that to my kid, it would be like, what are you saying to this, this guy? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you just right. kind of would hope that something would come to a head. But, um, I guess that may have been, uh, that may have made, forgive me if I'm, I'm, uh, presuming something here, but did that whole term tumultuous teenage years situation make it more likely that you would look far across the country for a place to move? Yeah, it did. Absolutely. So in 1984, yeah, in 1984, um, uh, my mom moved out to Seattle and then 85, my sister moved to live with my mom, my younger sister, and she finished up high school out here and I waited till I was done high school and then I moved out, out to Seattle also. And yeah, I was very, very happy. I was, that was my, you know, last couple of years of high school. I'm like, I just got to get done. I moved to Seattle. I'll be very far away from all this and, and, you know, be in a much happier place. And I was right. So your mom ended up, uh, sort of forging the trail to Seattle on behalf of you and you said your sister Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then you spent some time in Seattle going to college yeah, I went. Well, I went to uh, Evergreen State College in Olympia for two years. It was a hippie school, so so that's where you learned how to be a hippie. <laughs> yeah, basically, it was a school in the woods. It was basically a school designed so that uh, people could go get stoned and drop acid in in a very safe place, and and that's essentially what what people did. I think some may have kind of accidentally got gotten educations while they were there, but you had to work pretty hard to actually do that. Uh, there used to, the old joke we had was, um, uh, why did the greener, a greener's an evergreen student, uh, why did the greener cross the road? And the answer was, for four credits. <laughs> nice. Sounds like a place yeah. of, of elevated stature and learning. Um, yeah. And, and uh, so at this point, you, did you, did you like... And I, I couldn't hack it two years and I was done. <laughs> You're done, but sometimes so, uh, it's sometimes it's good to know within only two years that you that you don't want to do it and yeah, to yeah. Uh, move on to bigger and better things. Um, one of the other other things I know about you is that you are a big fan of literature, and um, 
reading in general and I, I know that you've you've credited your love of reading with the whole reason for for example coming up with software like net newswire in the past um is this something that started when you were a kid or is this something that you started getting from the college experience can you can you like uh put a pinpoint on that well i come from a family of readers my my grandmom was a librarian uh my other grandmom i think she may have worked at the new yorker or or someplace similar uh in the middle of the last century and uh she was very well educated and so on so uh my mom was a constant reader and my mom had uh i think a subscription to the science fiction book of the month club something like that so it was a ton of science fiction in the house and I started reading just by reading that, just, you know, stuff off, off her bookshelves. Because the covers were great, you know, rocket ships and, and um, you know, and distant planets and so on. And any, any young boy, I think, would just be, would, of course, gravitate to that stuff. Right. And I loved it. There was so much, so many great books. I just, you know, I just read all the time and still do. Well, when I'm not programming, I when guess. When you're not programming, the great time yeah. suck of all time sucks. Um, and, uh, so you're going to school in Evergreen State College, you go for two years, you decide this is not for me. So, um, where did you land when you came out of Evergreen State College? That's a, yeah, Evergreen was, um, yeah, it was a weird place. So I came, came back to Seattle and I went to Seattle Central Community College for a little while. And while I was there, uh, I'd been away from computers, but I got back into it into computers in a roundabout way. Uh, that is, um, the school newspaper, which was called the city collegian, uh, was there. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll join the school newspaper. That'll be fun. Well, and it was their first year of using desktop publishing. So they had a Mac two VX, something like mm-hmm. that. And that's a nice a Mac laser printer. And yeah, yeah. Though we, when the, when the FX came out a little later, we were just drooling over that. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, laser printer, uh, big, uh, one of those radius pivot monitors. Oh yeah. Um, geez, it was, it was just great. So suddenly I'm, you know, back to using computers again. And I had taken uh, a couple few years off from them. Uh, if you can imagine I was in college without a computer and didn't even use a computer cause nobody did. Right. Uh, but yep, yeah, finally back to it and, and loving it. You know, uh, putting together a newspaper, you know, writing articles, editing articles. Uh, we would print stuff out on the laser printer and then just uh, do the paste up on an old fashioned light table. Uh, but with with the stuff we'd printed out on, on the laser printer instead of, you know, the way you would do it today, where you would probably just generate a PDF file and send that to the printer. So, right. I don't know. so it was a great mix of, of the analog and digital still in those days. And, and it was it was just so damn much fun. I, I loved it. Can you think back to that time and think about... Um, were, I know that for me as a programmer, as a software developer, much of my inspiration comes from looking at the tools I have and seeing the, the shortcomings. And I imagine that's the way it works for you as well. Can you think of the time when you started seeing things like, this shouldn't work this way, this should this should go another way. Was there stuff when you were working on this city college paper where you started saying, huh, I'd, I, I wish there was this tool. Did, did those gears get started then? 
Hmm. Well, I remember wishing for things, but I don't think I was th- approaching it much like a software developer would. Uh, I remember wishing we, that we didn't necessarily have to, you know, use the light table. We could just print out, you know, the whole thing and, and send those pages to the printer. Um, but in retrospect, I would have missed out on, the, you know, the fun of wielding an exacto and glue and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I wasn't really thinking that much in, in that way at that time. Not not until later. I think it's kind of funny the way that those of us who have had these lower tech you know, those of us who are old enough that we got accustomed to doing some job before the technology came along, we almost always look back on that kind of fondly, even though it was painful in in retrospect. It's like, sure, yeah. And I, I think back to like uh, programming at Apple with, um, you know, having to debug everything with assembly language and stepping through single steps. And I still do that sometimes today, but it's like, I, I wouldn't go back and take that away because I feel like I learned something that you couldn't learn if there were different or better tools. And you probably learned stuff with that exacto knife that could never be taught to you in Quark Express or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. Well, one thing that I learned is that computers are really, really great at precision and, and human hands are not, particularly my human hands. Right. Uh, but it's, you know, what can I say? I was, I was just such a great experience. Um, you know, choosing the, the tape, do you want a hairline or a one point or a two point and, you know, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. That was really, really cool. Yeah. See that jargon. I don't even know what that means. You've got this, oh, okay. this whole world of knowledge here. That's like, yeah, well, obviously I've come to come to think that I don't need it, but I like that kind of stuff where you kind of have this secret hidden knowledge that who knows, Mm -hmm. it might be working for you in some ways that you don't even fully appreciate. Yeah, could be. Uh, With layout, I learned, you know, I think the the ideas behind behind layout haven't really changed necessarily between the old days and and computer-assisted layout. Um, It's just a lot easier now. Yeah. But design is design, right? Yep. And you're still, you know, doing that kind of layout when you put together the screens in Interface Builder or in Photoshop as you mock up your user interfaces. Yep. Absolutely. Or Acorn, perhaps. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm happy to welcome a new sponsor, Next Page for iPad. Are you a musician still struggling with paper music? Next Page for iPad lets you leave your pile of books and scores on the shelf and carry all of your music with you. Next Page was designed from the ground up to be extremely good at one thing, displaying your scores so you can concentrate on performing at your best. Next Page allows you to easily organize your music for live performance and includes a full set of markup tools to annotate your scores. And for the most convenient playing experience possible, you can even pair a wireless foot pedal with Next Page and turn pages without ever touching the screen. End the hassles of paper music today with Next Page. To learn more, visit onstagetechnologies.com slash nextpage. You know, I can relate really well to this product myself because some of you out there may know that I actually, after my long young career at Apple, quit Apple and went back to school for music. And one of the things I did in my music studies was study the piano. 
And this is a problem we had back then of having to stop in the middle of performance and turn your page, turn the page of your music. And oftentimes sheet music is designed in such a way that it makes it easy or relatively easy to look up from your fingers or whatever at the time of playing and turn the page. But sometimes it's not. And during performances, often uh, you need a second person there just to turn the pages for you. So something like this that really keeps all of your music in one place. You can import your own PDFs, put it on your iPad, have it there for you, whether you're playing in the context of school or at a friend's house, you happen to have your iPad, pop out your iPad, put it on the piano, play your music. This is a really great product. Thank you, Onstage Technologies and NextPage for sponsoring the show. Uh, They have a special offer, actually, for folks who are interested in the product. They want to give away 50 licenses to the app. And the way they're going to do this is you just go to onstagetechnologies.com, find the sign-up sheet there for their mailing list, and if you're interested in the product, you'll want to sign up for their mailing list. And if you do so, stating bit splitting as the source of your interest, the first 50 people who do that will receive a free copy of Next Page. Once again, that's onstagetechnologies.com. Thanks again. Um, so I'm just, I'm trying to figure out here, Brent, I know that sometime in the mid nineties, you really started getting serious about making your own software Mm -hmm. and, and looking back to the late eighties, you were working as a, or you were going to community college and working on desktop publishing you know, uh, using desktop publishing software to produce a newspaper. Something mm-hmm. something happened in between those times that pushed you towards not only doing more software development, but ultimately um, deciding to do it in the context of your own business, making your own business. Um, mm-hmm. Did you have a professional software programming job that got you sort of moving in that direction, or was your first was your first stuff uh, just your your independent stuff? Uh, my first stuff was my independent stuff, and I was in, I was an indie then because hell nobody would have hired me. I had you know no experience other than you know um, when I was a kid banging away on my Apple II Plus and and the education I got from my parents. Uh, so yeah, I don't think that would have landed me a job. So I had no choice but to be indie. Uh, but the way I got there was let's see after college I never graduated. Um, I, I had hoped to go into journalism because, you know, my love of reading and writing, um, you know, would have applied. Uh, and that seemed like a fairly pragmatic choice. But for some reason, I didn't end up in journalism. I ended up being a busboy. And then I went from being a busboy to a book pricer at Goodwill. So I was the guy putting the stickers on all the romance novels. That's an, it's an important job. But let me, let, me inter- let me interrupt and just um, ask, what kind of... Uh... What kind of environment were you a busboy in? What kind of restaurant? Uh, almost always seafood restaurants with uh, with a view of some water. Uh-huh. So you were you were you were uh, you were busboys. What bring bring people the water? Clean up the? Do you clear the plates? I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Busboy, clean the plates, set set the table. Yeah, and and I I was really really good at it. I was an awesome busboy. I think the place I worked at the most, uh, Seattleites will recognize the name Chinooks. 
uh, though I you know, had a few other jobs as well. Um, and I was really good at it, really fast. Um, and I loved it in a way because you'd go to work and come home with 35 bucks in, in cash. And that was cool. And that was enough to get you through the, to the next day. And yet, at some point, despite your excellence at this job, mm. you I decided it wasn't a career. It wasn't a career. Yeah. yeah. The idea of being a 40-year-old busboy didn't really appeal to me. And uh, I didn't want to become a server because that meant talking to people way too much. And, right. You know, it's not, it's not that I'm not friendly, but geez, uh, a work day where I'm talking to people a lot doesn't sound like fun. Not for me. Uh, so I tried a few other jobs, but then I had the realization that what, what I really wanted, what I dreamed about from when I was a kid is I thought that when I grew up, I would be a writer, you know, uh, Hemingway or Fitzgerald, right? And I would sit at home all day, uh, in front of a keyboard and make things up. And I realized, well, I'm probably not going to be that unless I have, you know, uh, 10 years of savings or something to even really get started at this. But the other thing I was good at when I was young was programming. And I bet if I sat down, started working on it, I could start to be successful at that fairly soon. And um, I sure loved it then, even though I, even though as a kid, I didn't consider it a career, just a hobby. Why not make it a career? Uh, you know, it's such a, such a fun thing. So we bought a Mac... Performa 605, and um, my dad bought me the ThinkC IDE, and uh, I just started to, um, to learn what I considered at the time modern programming compared to basic and 6502 assembler, which I had learned previous, and started doing that and really fell in love, fell back in love with, with programming. And before I knew it, I'm like, yep, this is it. This is what I'm doing. I uh, got to form a company, got to get some products out the door. And, and that's what I did. And then, uh, and then I, I learned recently that I, I had always thought that your first software company was Ranchero Software. And I guess it was, but it started off with a different name. Worldwide Power and Light. We had to change the name because somebody else already had an almost identical name. And they preexisted us by a couple, couple months. That's a long name for a company. Um, I like it, so though. It, 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 it reminds me of, yeah. uh, uh, what's the guy? Um, uh, Mike Jitlov. Do you know him? Mm, I don't an think an- so. Animator. Uh, I have to look it up. It's, uh, he has some kind of, uh, it's just some kind of movie. that it's, uh, it's ringing a bell. It'll come back to me. I'll put it in the show notes. Right. But anyway, um, now at this point, you, you, I noticed you're using the, uh, you're saying we had to rename the company. Was there a, partner at this at this point your wife wasn't involved had you had you met your wife at this point yeah i met my wife in 1989 and uh and we got married in 97 after living together for many years so we've been together for uh almost 25 years now wow okay so she was and was she involved uh from from day one then with uh worldwide power and light and then yep yep she absolutely was yeah yeah in fact the the first or incarnation the company had seven people really uh, family and friends yeah <laughs> wow yeah 
Sure did. What was your what was your initial uh, project? What was your first ambition putting the company together? You obviously, um, you, if you had the wherewithal to give it a name and to enlist seven people, you must have had a project mm-hmm. in mind. Yeah, uh, website design, hosting, uh, both an emphasis on. Uh, forget what we call it well probably just use the word interactive but programmed websites you know instead of just you know a brochure it would be you know a website that actually did something that had some level of interactivity and so that's what we did first and did that lead to um, a marketed product so my first apps were apps that ran behind webstar which was the uh, the big mac http server of the day so they were you know, they were bigger than CGI scripts, but um, that was basically the idea. Uh, one of them was called Spotlight, and that was uh, a search engine, naturally, for your website. And that worked with Frontier and FileMaker Pro to index and make your make your site searchable. Wow. I also, also had an app, a WebStar plugin called Deny Agent, which I don't think sold any copies. And then I had another one that I can't even remember its name anymore, which also sold maybe like two copies. I don't know. And uh, surely you heard about um, our friend Manton Reese's Searchlight product, which, which is a search engine for websites. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Did that ring any bells for that? <laughs> I don't. I think it's kind of funny that in, in, in you know what is it now. 20 almost 20 years later manton reese is still trying to take a crack at the same market (laughs) yeah yeah no kidding you know i i didn't even i didn't even connect the two but yeah manton's done a heck of a job i I really like really like his app cool Uh, mine in the in back in those days i think i sold 10 copies of spotlight but it was 99 dollars, so i made almost a grand oh there you go and, yeah. and I think it's good for people who are, you know, some of the people listening to this show are already fans of yours, Brent, and it's easy to look at somebody who's become such a success, you know, as I said, almost 20 years later, and just assume that they've always been, you know, well, I'm sure Brent Simmons just writes software and it flies off the shelves. And all of us who have any level of success now have those apps or those products or those efforts that sold zero copies and mm-hmm. it's good to, I think, remind people about that. Um, and, and like you were saying, uh, you, you, you got done with this like sort of failed effort to go through college and you started your own company because you felt like nobody would even hire, nobody would even put their faith in you if you were to go out and say, hey, I want to be a programmer. Um, but I guess something something must have happened. Uh, was it the was it the experience of working on your own stuff at Ranchero Software that gave you the confidence to end up approaching, or did uh, did Dave Weiner at uh, at Userland approach you? How did that hookup occur, and how did the change of heart occur in your in your place to say, you know what? Um, I imagine at some point you say, you know what, I'm actually pretty good at this and people should hire me to do this. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny, you know, I think I've known Manton Reese since those days because he was, he was part of the the frontier community then. Uh, And so the way I got to know Dave was just uh, the frontier um, developers community was a very vibrant, fun and an interesting place. And uh, I was loving using that, that development tool. 
So I was just active and, you know, got to know Dave uh, through the mailing list and later through phone calls and things like that. And uh, before long, you know, he wanted to uh, ramp up his business again and uh, he needed people. And uh, uh, it was just an obvious fit that I would go to work for Userland. And I realized at the time that that's probably the only company in the world that could hire me. Uh, but at the same time, I realized I probably needed some kind of, uh, some kind of education or some kind of you know, uh, position where I have a mentor, at least, mm-hmm. uh, to, to really learn how to be great at, at what I do. So I decided to put my indie-ness aside, which you know, wasn't making any money anyway. So it wasn't, it wasn't that hard. Uh, so I put that aside and I you know, decided to go work, work with Dave. And that was great. He was, uh, he was a fantastic mentor. And that experience is, is one of the treasures of my life. I uh, had such a fun time. Worked very, very hard. Uh, was often frustrated and really angry at Dave. Um, and probably vice versa, too. But, you know, that's how a close working relationship can be sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it was a magical time. Because at, at, at Userland, uh, you know, I, I can't take credit for any of this. But, but this is when RSS and OPML and uh, XML RPC and uh, blogging... And all these things just started coming up. And at Userland, we were uh, either the inventors of something or popularizers or heavily into or, or whatever. So all these fun technologies, you know, that's, that's what I was doing all the time. And like, you know, some days I'd wake up, there'd be a message from Dave, and I'd give him a call, and he'd tell me about, you know, something new, and, and my mind would be like blown again. And that was a really, really fun time. It's great to think back to, you know, you said you knew Manton, you know, from around that time. You you, you met Dave Weiner, uh, I think, virtually through mm-hmm. through the nascent web. Um, and these days, yep. it's not uncommon for people to meet folks through the web to establish credentials, to get a reputation, to have a sort of, you know, not just like a virtual friendship, but a real friendship that grows all through our, you know, networked, uh, you know, interfaces. Um, so it sort of strikes me that how you, the timing was pretty lucky back then for you. Because uh, there, there weren't that many years before when this happened for you that it really could have happened online that way. It's like the the, the the generation uh before this you would have had to have made the connection in the local computer club or mm-hmm. something like that so you you ended up in this situation i assume you know i know dave weiner lives in new york now i assume he he probably did then or didn't live in seattle um uh, he lived in woodside california woodside california so um mm-hmm. it was a remote thing and there was virtually no chance you would have made that connection with him, you know, around the Seattle area. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. In fact, I, if it weren't for the web, I, I would not have become a successful programmer. Just because you wouldn't have had that opportunity to get motivated to program or you wouldn't have ended up with the mentorships that you you found? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, how, how did I... How did I even learn about what an IDE is, much less which, which one to buy? Um, how did I meet 
other programmers? How did I, what kind of software seemed interesting to write? Uh, the answer to all these questions is the web. Uh, I loved the web from the first moment I saw it because, because I realized I could write anything and anybody could write anything and we could put it up there and the entire world could get to it. And, and that turned me on way more than anything could have. Um, that, was, that, that was just, we take it for granted now, but believe me, there was, there was nothing like that. Your, your best hope in those days was maybe you'd write something that uh, The Atlantic might publish or, you know, or if you're shooting really low, maybe a letter to the editor in the, in the local newspaper, I suppose. Right. Um, but there was nothing like the web. You could just publish stuff put it up there and it's accessible worldwide and that that fired me up i mean and that was great but then how I, how i went about my career was entirely um because of the web in in every respect so you so, so just for folks who don't know you did end up going leaving this um this great mentorship with dave weiner uh, all this time you put into um products for Userland, I, I think, um, mm-hmm. ended up really setting the stage for you, knowing a heck of a lot about the problem domain for what would become your first big hit mm-hmm. um, in Net Newswire. And I guess at some point you were um, hanging out, working. You know, I think I think you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned before that you've always worked, I guess, I guess apart from the busboy jobs and other stuff that's not computer related, you've always worked remotely or for yourself, but in your home. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point you're working on this stuff for Dave Weiner. And I guess you start to get the itch and you think, Hmm, you know, maybe I've learned enough here. Maybe I, maybe there must've been some element of like well look what happened the last time i tried to run my own software company i sold 10 copies of (laughs) of spotlight and um i don't want to do that again um Mm -hmm. something click in your mind that made you made you confident that you would be more successful if you tried again or was it just sort of uh what the heck let's just see what happens yeah it's a good question well uh, the first thing was, you know, I'd been at Userland, I, I think, six years, and I knew I was was finished. You know, I'd, I'd learned what I needed to, and I needed to go out on my own. Uh, so the f- I initially tried to quit on, I, I'm not sure I have the day exactly right, but it was something like September 8th, 2001, um, where I put in my notice. And a few days later, uh, they convinced me that uh, maybe I shouldn't quit just right now, given the uncertainty of the of the world <laughs> right. in, in those in those days. So I held off until I think February of the next year, and I think I was convinced I was going to have a success, but that it might take two apps before I got there. And I was lucky; it was really the first one that that did it. Um, but I I didn't have a lot of doubt. I just knew. I would have to work really, really hard, which, you know, I did. That's no problem. Um, but I remember going with an RSS reader first because I had been skeptical of RSS uh, while I was at Userland. It was, it was not something I necessarily loved, but near the end of my time there, I started to, I, that started to change for me in a big, big way. I became an addict. But I, I didn't really like the RSS reader that Userland made. Just, you know, wasn't really my style. So I thought, well, how about I write a 
Cocoa app and, and do this, you know, in, in a different way, do this the way I think it should be done. And it turned out that that was a pretty good call. Turns out that uh, it basically set a standard for this whole genre of newsreaders on native clients. Um, but what's kind of interesting is I've, I've sensed from you a sort of, you know, a lot of us are kind of passionate about web programming or passionate about native programming. And sometimes, you know, myself included, it might, it might kind of lead to even a kind of like, a, you know, kind of like a charged up uh, defiance of one versus the one versus the other. And I've always sensed from you something that I think is admirable, which is I think you have a sort of a true love for both. You mentioned just a few minutes ago how much you credit the web and the ability to put your work up there basically and say, here it is. You can use it. You can run it. You can see it. I can show off. You can benefit. Um, what, what was the, what were the kind of th- thinking that went into choosing Coco and choosing something that would be necessarily limited to running on a Mac when you decided to put all this energy into a new product? That's a good question. Um, I, well, Coco, Coco, at least uh, Mac OS X, anyway, was was very new in those days, and the user interface was such a such a step forward in most respects, anyway, from what we what we had been using, and it was just it was just the most exciting thing there was at the at the time, and I always wanted to be a guy who wrote who wrote apps, you know, I I didn't necessarily want to limit myself to that, but I wanted to, you know, at least have an app or two or three. You know, because just because they're cool, they're cool, aren't they? Uh, they are, and I, you know, I love writing websites. I love web software. It's a lot of fun, uh, but you know, apps are really cool too. And I like that, you know, the scale of them and the level of detail. And you know, uh, do you support Apple Script? I mean, there's you know all kinds of all these little cool things you can do with apps that are that are a ton of fun. So I wanted to do that, and I wanted to do that with the new thing. So I learned. Objective C and the Cocoa frameworks and everything, and because I was learning all that stuff as I was going, it took me about ten, ten months I think to get to NetNewsWire 1.0, which is still still pretty great actually. I mean the way that yeah, the, something. the way that a lot of peop- a lot of people's 1.0s end up playing out is, you know, you lose motivation, maybe you get distracted for a few months or a few years, and you know it seems like you get a kind of uh, be in your bonnet and get things done when you kind of commit to having it be a project. Um, and you know, for folks who don't know, I think there's few, few listeners probably who don't know this, but I am, I am the very fortunate beneficiary of your getting a be in your bonnet sometimes because, uh, at one point during the development of net newswire, you decided to add a blog editor to the product and I guess that bee in its bonnet ended up uh, working its way right out of NetNewsWire into a standalone product called MarsEdit, which most folks also probably know I am now the developer of. So thank you, Brent, for MarsEdit. Sure, yeah. Thanks for, for doing such wonderful things with it. Well, that's kind of you to say. Um, but the, the way that all played out was um, really all, also all tied up in the fact that 
after this, you know, you, you had this, this six year period of working for Dave Weiner, then several years working for yourself. And then it's like the cycle repeated itself. You went back to a situation where you're working remotely for another company mm-hmm. and you just seem to be comfortable in both of these capacities in a way that, I mean, I don't know if you'll ever do it again at this point. Uh, you know, no, the, no, never. The latest, <laughs> I'm done. The latest <laughs> step for you is that you are now back to being an indie software developer working for yourself working on ranchero software um but that was something that was a cycle for you and you say now that um you know so 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 just to fill in the gaps here you went back to uh you went back to working full-time for a company called newsgator uh, and then you worked on a really cool app that was a sort of spin-off company from them called glassboard um and finally, this year, you are back to indie software development. You've got to be in your bonnet, and you're working on something again. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really excited about my new app. I, I haven't had a feeling this good about a new app, really, in, in, in many years. Uh, and um, working with um, other people, not very many of them, and... Um, it's just, it's a great working relationship. I love the concept of the app. I love how it's coming together. I love what it does. Um, it's cool. It's just not ready to ship yet, and I can't talk about it yet. But I'm really excited. Can you give us, uh, can you give us any um, vague genre-based, like, is it, can you say whether it's an iOS app or whether it's a web app or anything like that? Um, I'll just say it's, it's not a game. It's not a game. It's not the next letterpress no, no, not a game. Cool. Well, uh, that's, that's as far as I'll go. It's as far as we'll go on the on the um, topic of what it is. Is there anything you can hint, allude to about when it is? Uh, soon, I hope. So this is something. If if you've been working on it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm assuming here. But if you've been working on it for, you know, several months since you, or just a few months actually, I guess since you went back to uh, indie, indie development. Um, I would say that either it, it, you are much faster than you used to be, or it's a smaller scale project, an undertaking than Net Newswire. I think both are true. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, I'm excited to see what it is. I won't pester you too much more about uh, about that. Um, and anyway, Brent, I want to step back away from uh, the tech nerd programming talk for a minute because. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the interesting things about you is that while you were born in Chicago, uh, raised on the East Coast of the United States, and really became a man in the Seattle area, you spent one year of your life living internationally. Yeah, that's right. It, I think I was with Sheila. We weren't married yet, but we had been living together for for a few years. And she worked at a. Uh, she was in biotech back in those days, and she worked at a lab here at the University of Washington. And the head of that lab was offered a position uh, at a a brand new lab in Grenoble in France at the uh, Institute of Structural Biology, or as I would mangle it, Institut de Biologie Structurale, something like that. Hey, that sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, all right, thanks. So he took that job and he took his employees with him. And, uh, you know, they even gave me... um, 
just so we could afford it a little bit better. They gave, they gave me a part-time uh, secretarial position. So I, uh, I did like spreadsheets and uh, writing up, this is 1992, so there was an email, there were faxes. I would type stuff up in Word, print it out, and fax stuff all the time. Wow. And to do, to do another part of my job was um, uh, going down to the periodicals library, you know, which had, you know, Journal of Cell Biology and all the kind of similar stuff. And um, uh, they, they would send me lists of articles, you know, page numbers, whatever. And I would just like do a ton of photocopying and um, collate them and whatever, bring them back to the office. And, uh, amazing. You t- all the technology around all this stuff has obviously changed hugely since then and this was sort of in the period of time between college and really diving into ranchero software so yeah that's right was there still uh was was this another one of those periods where or was this part of a period where there was just a complete pause on computers and you know programming yeah no no programming for me during those days um you know i used programmers just to you know, secretarial type stuff. Um, but it's it's a neat experience looking back. This was just about the last time that anybody could um, go from America to Europe and be almost completely out of touch. Right, unless you wanted to pay like a bajillion dollars in long distance telephone. It was a do- dollar a minute. So we didn't talk on the phone much. Yeah, we didn't have much money. We didn't own a computer. We had uh, we didn't have email or the web or anything at, at work. Um, you know, as I say, they were still using fax machines for most of their communication. Um, we didn't. I think for a total of one month of that whole time, we had a TV, we were borrowing someone's TV. So we didn't even have that. And um, and when you did have the TV, did either one of you understand French well enough to to enjoy it? No, not really. So we would watch music videos uh, or find some English language stuff, which uh, was hard to find, but we could occasionally. Uh, so what we relied on, though, was the International Herald Tribune, which was an Engl- English language newspaper published in Europe. And, uh, you know, I would just go from um, place to place until I found the, the International Herald Tribune after work. And it being France, you couldn't count on, you know, one single, uh, one single press place to actually have it on any given day. So I might have to go to one, two, three, or four, or whatever, to actually get, like, the day's copy. Um, but we, you know, so starved for anything in English, I think at one point I started picking up, like, Penthouse, just to have, just so just, we could actually Just for the articles. articles. Right, right, right. <laughs> As a matter of fact, yeah. As a matter of fact, yes. Uh, well, that's kind of an interesting example, you having to run around town for the International Herald Tribune, uh, which... Yep. I believe heartbreakingly has been renamed recently to New York Times International or something like that. Hmm. Um, he, you know, these days, if you if you were, you know, sent on a mission to live in France with your wife for a year, you would have everything you needed English wise piped into your laptop over the internet yeah right and i kind of like these i kind of like these uh it's kind of like going back to the idea of like oh having to use the exacto knife was kind of annoying but you got something out of it and um Mm -hmm. having to do this kind of daily mission got you out of the house forced you to engage with 
French culture. Yep. I, you know, maybe you wanted to anyway, but if you're anything like me, I could see being a little lazy some days and just saying, well, I, I got the International Herald Tribune right here on my iPad. I don't need to go out. Um, yeah, right. And exactly. that's one of those things where the jumping through the hoops of uh, technological primitive primitiveness uh gave you a different experience of living there you know Mm -hmm. and there are probably things you know about grenoble that you only know because you left the house so much yeah sure yeah so uh and and you know our our evenings entertainment uh we had no tv not that much money uh we would sit and write letters you know to friends and family right which sounds insane. What is this? The 1800s? <laughs> no, it's just, you know, uh, 20 years ago, just sit, sit down with pencil or a pen and paper and actually write letters. And then when we actually wanted to watch some moving pictures, we would go to the art house cinema. Now, of course, everything's backwards because it's France. So the art house cinema showed, um, uh, American movies with French subtitles. Okay. Yeah. So you got to kind of just enjoy it, uh, as if you were back home watching the movie regularly. Yeah. Yeah. So we saw, I can't remember, uh, Reservoir Dogs. Um, Reservoir Dogs was particularly, um, uh, I'm not sure the right word, but it was particularly impressive because we weren't used to watching moving pictures of any kind, you know, not, not having a TV or, or anything going to the movies maybe once a month. So Reservoir Dogs, you know, which is, a little bit violent and a lot intense, just like since we were not immune to uh, moving pictures at that time, it just blew us away. And it didn't have any anything else in your sort of consciousness to edge it out or compete with for... Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. So I, I imagine, uh, you know, some some people watch the same movie dozens of times to remember it well. I imagine you remembered Reservoir Dogs pretty well watching it once. Yeah, including remembering parts that weren't actually in the movie. Uh, for years, and for years, she and I were convinced that you actually saw the guy cut off the guy's ear. Uh huh. But 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 you don't. That that it cuts away right before. That's uh, the power of filmmaking. Absolutely. Yep. It can force you to think that things have happened that didn't, and that's a, a special effect in its own right, I guess. Uh, yeah, sure is. Yep. So uh, back in. Um Back in Seattle, obviously we already alluded to the fact that you ended up going into starting Ranchero Software. Um, you went from Ranchero, you, as we said, you worked for Dave Weiner, quit that, made Net Newswire, made Mars Edit, went to NewsGator, uh, made, you know, c- continued working on Net Newswire, did quite a bit of work on Net Newswire there. Now Net Newswire belongs to Black Pixel, Mars Edit belongs to me. Uh, some other stuff you worked on, uh, Glassboard is still going, and uh, Taplinks it belongs to. Uh, remind me, uh, Push IO, Joe Pizzillo and Dan Burka. Yeah, right. So mm-hmm. you've got this. Uh, you've got this record here of uh, coming up with stuff and moving on, and um, mm-hmm. that's always impressive to me because, like, you know, recently Marco Arment impressed me on this in this regard because he you know is famous for being one of the you know co-founders of tumblr being the founder of instapaper and now as of a week or so ago he's not you know 
he's not working on Instapaper anymore. He just is able to leave that behind. Sometimes, sometimes I wonder if uh, this is a special skill. Do you see this as something that you you are particularly good at? Kind of se- making these severing these ties with, you know, things that you know you work on them for years and years and years. Like you probably st- you probably still feel like the stuff you worked on with Dave Weiner is kind of your your you know precious projects on some respect. Uh, I, I do. And in fact, you know, I look at it, it's like all that stuff is GPL that I can sit down and work on it right now if I want to. Funny. Um, but you know, I worked on net newswire for nine years and that's a long, long time to, yeah. to work on, uh, on anything, uh, you know, that's, yeah, that, that is a long time. So, you know, while it's easy to say, Hey, I'm good at, you know, moving on and so on. I'm also good at sticking with stuff for a really long time. Um, I don't know if it's a skill so much as, or is just that, you know, if your career is long enough, eventually that's going to happen to you. You're going to work on something and you're going to move on from it. Right. Uh, even if it's a big thing, even if it was your thing, your successful thing at some point, you know, you, you, you're just going to move on and do something else. And I think that's, that's fine. That's, that's growth. That's, that's how it should work. But, uh, as far as the cycle of going indie and then working for a company, you said you think now you are indie for good. Yeah. And so do you envision, do you envision the rest of your programming career being more of a cycle of just coming up with your own products, seeing how long they are worth sticking to and then moving on to something else? Or do you see an end of programming in your, in your, uh, you know, do you think you'll you'll reach a point where you say, you know what? Actually, I wanted to be a journalist, and that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> well, the nice thing about ble- being being a blogger is, yeah, hey, you know, you kind of are a journalist. You know, at least in um, at least in a way, right? right? You're reporting on something, writing stuff. I don't know. That that, that fulfills for me that that desire. Uh, so there's always that. Um, yeah, I basically see the rest of my career as, you know, do an app, do it for as long as I need to do that app, which, you know, would be different, um, depending on circumstances, uh, and then do another app and just keep going until, until I get tired of the whole thing, which I'm 45 now. I'm, I'm guessing I have 10 to 20 more years of programming. Yep. I will. I certainly hope it's at least that much. Um, yeah. and who knows what, who knows what programming is even going to be 10 or 20 years from now, mm. whether we will be, you know, that much more capable of doing what they call programming in 20 years or whether we will just be completely, completely out of our league. But, uh, <laughs> I certainly, I certainly look forward to, uh, seeing where things go with you, Brent. Um, thanks. I suppose we ought to wrap this show up. Uh, is there anything that, uh, that you want to let people know about before? Uh, I know you, I know you didn't have much to say about your upcoming projects with the, uh, with the relaunch of Ranchero software. Um, is there anything else? Oh, um, I want to mention that you are also a podcaster. Um, we didn't really get into talking about that, but that's kind of a form of journalism as well. Uh, you have the identical co- mm-hmm. the identical cousins podcast with Michael Simmons, who yep. uh, has the um, the great fortune of sharing your last name. <laughs> and uh, um, so, anything else going on? Any other projects I sort of missed covering uh, with you? 
Yeah, I've got another project that I'm just not quite ready to talk about yet. So, so I didn't miss it. Uh, but just uh, it's just uh, yeah. All I got is that yeah. smallest tease. Yeah. Yep. Well, you got the, you got mm-hmm. you got mo- more stuff. You're letting listeners know that actually we can't learn everything there is to know about Brent Simmons in an hour and fifteen minutes, and that's a pretty good thing to come away with. Because it would sure be sad if we could. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, folks, to stay in touch with Brent Simmons, uh, you can find him on Twitter at Brent Simmons. Uh, do you have the same ID on app.net? Sure do. Brent Simmons. Yep. Brent Simmons on app.net. Uh, ranchero.com is your software site, but I think that's a little, it's a little bit uh, in uh, stasis, maybe. Uh, you're always blogging at yeah. inessential.com. Mm-hmm. Brent, I just want to thank you for joining me on the show. It's been really fun talking about your your childhood through your uh, tumultuous teenage years, your your uh, efforts to get through college, and then what really mattered most was uh, finding that you actually loved programming and could put your life's work into it. So thanks a lot yeah. for joining me today. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's been awesome. All right. Take care, Brent. All right, you too. This was Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalcott and Brent Simmons. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave a rating on the iTunes podcast directory. You can find links and other notes on the podcast homepage at bitsplitting.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening. Are you still with me? Maybe if we're real quiet we'll hear Brent return to his native habitat, pick up his guitar, and start singing. When you grab a hold of me You tell me I'll never be set free Well, I'm a parasite Creep and crawl, I step into the night Two pints of beers. Tell me, are you that fish too? Ain't got no money to spend. I know the night will never end. Lord knows I'm weak. Won't somebody get me off of this reef? Baby, your big blue whale Grab the reef when all the diving fails I swim, but I wish I never learned The water's too polluted with jam I die deep when it's ten feet overhead Grab the reef underneath my bed Ain't got no quarrels with God Ain't got no time to grow old Lord knows I'm weak Won't somebody get me off of this reef?